The Pod Doctors is brought to you by the Kindle book, Saving Limbs, Saving Lives, Advanced Treatments to Prevent Amputations in Diabetic Populations. This book by Dr. Damien Dauphiné discusses specific patient cases in diabetic limb preservation, which highlight the modern use of wound care technology that has exploded in the last 20 years. With only one advanced therapy available in 1999, there are now hundreds of options to help close chronic wounds in diabetic patients. Dr. Dauphiné distills these options down to show patients and physicians treating these patients how combinations of these products can be used to save limbs and save lives. Welcome to The Pod Doctors. I'm Dr. Damien Dauphiné, board-certified foot and ankle surgeon, and my partner, Dr. Rafa Hussein, fellowship-trained podiatric surgeon, and we are The Pod Doctors. Each week, The Pod Doctors will be discussing aspects of podiatric medicine and surgery to educate our audience on common foot and ankle problems and the latest treatment options available. We hope to bring you interesting and informative shows each week discussing all the crazy ways that our wonderful foot can malfunction and cause us problems. So please find us on all the platforms where you find your typical podcasts, uh, Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, and YouTube where you can view our videos. So please like and subscribe, and we will see you next time on The Pod Doctors. Welcome to The Pod Doctors. I'm Dr. Damien Dauphiné, and I'm here with my partner, Dr. Rafi Hussein. And welcome to Season 2 of The Pod Doctors. We did make it through 18 episodes, um, and we, we created an arbitrary end of the season there, uh, because we do have some new templates, and we have uh, some updated uh, technological aspects of the podcast that we're going to take advantage of. And we got cases coming up. We're going to do some, mm-hmm. uh, some in-depth, uh, overview of what we're doing in the OR, which I think a lot of people are asking for. Right. And I think that's going to be really cool. We've got really interesting cases. Uh, just recently, we had utilizing a new instrument tray for doing lateral ankle stabilization. And uh, that went really well. And we got some good video of that case. So hopefully be, be able to do some uh, overview or, or talking over that video and be able to explain what we're doing in the OR. Yeah, it should be a lot of fun. So season two uh, will begin with... A discussion about diabetic neuropathy. Um, what role does nerve decompression play? I think this has been a controversial topic for about 25 years now. And I think what we found clinically is that, you know, these diabetic patients are suffering from both upper and lower extremity nerve entrapment syndromes, more yeah. commonly than non-diabetics. Uh, you know, these patients get carpal tunnel about 30% more commonly than non-diabetic patients. Yeah. And, you know, when I was starting practice in 99, it was one of the most frustrating things that I was treating. So I had patients who were having peripheral nerve pain. They were having diabetic peripheral nerve pain, burning, tingling, numbness, shooting pain. And, you know, we had, essentially we had gabapentin. Lyrica. And, and then we had Lyrica, yeah. but which becomes gabapentin as it goes through the liver. Yeah. So it's essentially you have gabapentin, just dosed a little differently. And this drug and those two drugs have side effects. They make people foggy and and sleepy, and and a lot of folks can't tolerate them. Or they can't tolerate them at the doses that you need to be on to be able to have pain relief. And so we really struggled with that. And then even when you use multimodal aspects of pain management, where you're using an anti-inflammatory, you're using gabapentin, you know, things like... um, 
Capsaicin. Capsaicin. Um, you also had duloxetine came out. Yeah. And duloxetine was interesting because it was a neuritic pain drug, but also worked with depression. And so you, you know, a lot of these folks have some semblance of depression on board as well. And, and, and that drug worked for some folks, but not for all folks. So rather than, you know, continue to address their pain with a drug that wasn't going to fix anything, we started exploring with some of the studies that were being produced by uh, Lee Dellen and the, uh, and the uh, Neuropathy Institute that he started. <clears throat> He's a plastic surgeon at, in Baltimore at Johns Hopkins. And Dr. Dellen, you know, initially did animal studies that were really interesting um, they looked at the gait patterns in diabetic rats, yeah. and they, they saw how these diabetic rats were were changing their gait as the neuropathy got worse. Yeah, the pressure distribution changes. The pattern changes, um, and th- they could then go in and do a tarsal tunnel release on the ankle of the rat. It was this tiny little tarsal tunnel. Yeah. And you could release that tissue, and the gait would normalize in, in these rats. And so that was something that proved to him that, yeah, there's something to this. Because he would have patients that he would do carpal tunnel releases on, and he would do radiosensory and, and ulnar nerve releases on these folks, and they'd be like, oh, that was awesome. You got rid of my upper extremity pain, but my feet are killing me. What, yeah. what can you do for my feet? And for quite a while, he said, well, there's nothing we can do for your feet because it's it's a stocking glove, diabetic neuropathy that has no cure. And so... And I think that's the restriction nowadays. People are like, it's diabetic neuropathy, there's no treatment aside from treating the diabetes, which is not true. Absolutely. I, I think it's the dogma that has so deeply been embedded into diabetic neuropathy. It's like back when they used to talk about Charcot, you know, is it the, you know, the, the washout or is it that neuropathy that causes the, the breakdown of the joints? It's not one or other. It's the combination thereof. Right. And a certain percentage of diabetic patients who have peripheral nerve pain, they have an entrapment that's happening on, on top of the metabolic problem with the nerve. And I think for a long time, Dr. Dellen got kind of backlash from this because people misinterpreted what he was trying to tell them. They felt that he was saying he could treat diabetic peripheral neuropathy. And that's not what he was trying to do. He was trying to treat the overarching entrapment syndrome happening on top of what was going on metabolically with the nerve. So I think if you really understand that aspect of it, then this makes perfect sense. You're like, wow, I mean, anatomy plays a huge part in entrapment syndromes all over the body. When you have the right anatomy with the right metabolic problem, that combination is horrible. So you've got a nerve that's swelling due to the sorbitol pathway, and you've got tissues that are getting glycosylated and stiffer. Yeah. The tunnels that these nerves have to travel through, just like the carpal tunnel and the ulnar, the tunnel for the ulnar nerve at the elbow, we have the tarsal tunnel in the ankle, and we have the, 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 common, the, com- the common perineal or fibular nerve um, yeah. fascial tissue that creates a, a pseudo tunnel there on the side of the calf. And then your superficial peroneal nerve or fibular nerve. Where it's popping out of the fascia. So it's not really a tunnel, but there's an orifice there's an, there. There's an impingement there from the, the right. fascia over it or right. the fascia that it pierces through. That orifice can be, can be tight. You can have the nerve get kinked at that stage. And then deep perineal nerve on the top of the foot where you've got a tendon that crosses over yeah. it and crushes it right down on the bone. So... When you think of those problems in terms of the patient's diabetic, that's essentially one one level of crush on the nerve because it's the nerve being susceptible to entrapment and and all of these other soft tissue changes that are occurring that are making these soft tissues stiffer. 
And then you've got anatomy issues. So people who just naturally have tighter tunnels or yeah. who may have other anatomic variants that are making them more susceptible to entrapment. So let's go through like uh, your classic patients. A patient comes in, diabetic, long-standing, has had you know tingling, numbness, burning in the feet. That's what people describe as neuropathy or neuropathic pain. Sure. They get that stocking glove distribution, usually starts on the toes, starts fissuring back and coming back towards the ankles, even can get in the fingertips and coming back towards palms and wrists and whatnot. It feels like their feet are on fire. They have that paresthesia feeling, that uh, mm -hmm. almost like ants are on your skin. And um, what do you do next? I mean, well, the interesting thing is, if you look at the nerves that are involved, the the sural nerve. So that's why we kind of get away from that stocking glove uh, distribution thought process because most of these people, their sural nerve actually still works. Yeah, their saphenous nerve usually still works pretty well. Yeah. So why is that? Why does the tibial nerve and the fibular or perineal nerve go out? Yeah. So. So what we're talking about is our specific nerves that innervate mm -hmm. different parts of the foot. So what happens is a patient comes in and we'll test using our monofilament, our tuning fork. Uh, um, Wartenberg wheel. Wartenberg, I mean, we, mm -hmm. we do a whole array of tests or determine, is this just neuropathy for neuropathy's sake, or is there a entrapment type of problem going on in combination? So we can do a tenel, you can tap over the nerve. Yeah. And if you tap over a normal nerve, like in your wrist, you may feel sensation of the tapping but yeah. you're, you're typically not going to feel lightning out into your fingers yeah. when you do that tenel sign you should feel like electric pain like the aggravating mm -hmm. that nerve and it's like almost like when you hit your elbow you know when you hit that yeah. funny bone absolutely and just there's phalen's test which is a yeah. little bit more of a compression of, of the nerve um, compressing the nerve at that site but in the lower extremity we can tap over the tibial nerve at the tarsal tunnel we can tap over the deep fibular nerve the superficial fibular nerve very easily and you're going to notice in patients who have maybe worsening a pain, neurotic pain on one side than the other, almost invariably, you're going to be able to develop a tenel there and you can tap over it and they get lightning out into their toes. So that tells us that there's nerve entrapment at that point. So there's, it's so there's one the, indication. Yes. That. Yeah. Exactly. It's, it's originally tenel described it to describe nerves that were healing. Yeah. So, you know, we've, uh, I don't want to say we've bastardized that idea, but we've we've expanded the horizons of that test. Yeah. And, and this has been shown to be an effective way of evaluating nerve entrapment syndromes in the lower extremity and the upper extremity for quite a while. There's, there are peer-reviewed studies that have been published on this. But um, so that, I mean, that Snell sign can be an effective way of screening somebody for the potential for an entrapment syndrome. On top of their neuropathy. So yes. that comes to what we're talking right. about, the double crush injury, the double right. crush theory or... Or whatever it goes by nowadays. I mean, their names are constantly changing, but it's two forms of nerve injury. One, the neuropathic um, diabetic injury to the nerves, and two, that uh, hyperinflammation of that nerve getting entrapped under that, that non-elastic uh, tissue, uh, usually your fascia or retinaculum, uh, compressing that nerve. And the original papers on double crush were on upper extremity papers. They were describing carpal tunnel with thoracic outlet syndrome. Yeah. And we've again, extrapolated that to the lower extremity for folks that maybe have diabetes as one level of crush and then a local entrapment. Yeah. You can also see it in people who have L4, L5, S1 radiculopathy yeah. and a mild entrapment further down the line because it's the same axon all the way down yeah. from that it's spinal cord level. It's amazing how long those, those yeah, nerves are. Absolutely, all the way to the end of your toe. So yeah. this is a great example of showing you know, an unhealthy nerve and the healthy nerve where you have insulation around the nerve, these yeah. this myelin sheath that that's can what become you were talking degraded. About the, the Schwann cells, the, mm -hmm. the uh, 
uh, the sorbitol pathway. When Dr. D was saying the sorbitol pathway, so you know you take your glucose, and we've talked about this before. You eat your food, your glucose breaks down to fructose, sucrose, all the way to that smallest molecule, that sorbitol, that goes through those tiny, tiny vessels wrapping around those nerves and those nerve sheets, those nerve sheets made by the Schwann cells, making that myelin sheath, that protective layer that actually causes your nerves to fire much faster. Um, they get injured, and you see the injury. I mean, it, it, when you do those punch biopsies in clinic, right, when we take the to rule out uh, other type of nerve problems, that's what the pathologist is looking for. Well, they're at. looking for the number of nerves. And that too, yes. Right. They're looking for, I mean, if you're talking about ENFD, so the, um, the uh, epidermal nerve fiber density test, they're literally just counting nerves. Yeah. But you can do a sural nerve biopsy, yeah. clearly. And the sural nerve, you know, for better or for worse, the poor, poor sural nerve has always been thought of as, you know, expendable. expendable. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, people have biopsied that for quite some time to learn new things about the peripheral nervous system. Having said that, you know, we try to avoid that because the sural nerve has a function. And yeah. when you cut the sural nerve, in some cases, you're going to cause chronic nerve pain for that patient. So we try to avoid that. Yeah, we don't, we we, don't do yeah, that. Yeah, we try to. We well, no, I, I have. We have in the past. We've, we've, it's been necessary to do a sural nerve biopsy in the past. But, it, we, you know, it's fewer and far between. We can yeah. get information other ways now. Um, so that's the one pathway of nerve injury. The second pathway, like we talked about, is the the, um, the retinaculum, the... Um, the fascia compressing that nerve. Mm -hmm. The nerve gets angry, inflamed, and obviously the fascia over it is non-elastic and it becomes a compressing factor. It's just like if you, you know, you tie a string around your finger and you, you know, your the tip of your finger goes numb. You know, when you're a kid, you put the rubber bands around your fingers. I mean, and and the other aspect of this, yeah, you know, that that we need to pay attention to as well is uh, um, patients who have glucose control that's not adequate you know yeah. clearly they have a1c's in the 11 factor. 12 13 range you know and and clearly if you have diabetes you understand that you're, you want your a1c seven or less and there are good reasons for that because when we have patients who are chronically higher than that they have problems with wound healing they have problems with immune problems yeah. they have issues with retinopathy nephropathy yeah. you know so we're talking eyes kidneys mm -hmm. this disease it almost affects every organ system you can think of, yeah. except maybe the liver. I can't think of how it affects the liver. Uh, maybe in the lungs, I can't. Maybe indirectly. I, I, yeah, maybe yeah. indirectly. But I can't think of those two major organ systems yeah. are probably unaffected for the most part. But your cardiovascular system, your yeah. eyes, your kidneys, your skin, your microvascular your system. nervous system. Yeah. It's, it's incredible how this specific disease process can affect that many different organ systems in a negative way. Um, but to get back to, to double crush, I think double crush is, is, a, is a significant problem that we see with diabetic patients and these anatomic narrowings. So yeah. we're talking the tarsal tunnel, the area around the fibular neck or where the common fibular or common perineal nerve has to travel, at the top of the foot where you got the, the um, dorsalis pedis and the deep perineal nerve running together. Yeah. And then those, the ankle. Those collagen fibers get so much cross-linking in them, they become stiff, almost like right. fibrotic, rather than being nice, healthy, elastic. And you, that's, when you're doing the tarsal tunnel release in the ankle, you can literally hear those yeah. fibers crunch. Yeah, it sounds like, like you're cutting stuff. through celery. Yeah. yeah, and that's not what you want. But that's a very common very common issue. Um, and, and then we also see kind of a, an exacerbation of this in patients who have a lot of fat or adipose tissue around the ankle because yeah. if they have chronic swelling, 
this fat layer gets fibrotic. It yeah. gets fibrous. And, and that pinches that tenacity. That's starting to push on the entire tarsal tunnel as well. So you get folks who have, you know, a lot of adipose tissue around their ankles and they're diabetic and they have venous insufficiency. It's just it's a it's it's a domino effect and the nerve is really what gets beat up. This is what you said earlier, the thirty percent of diabetics right. um, they get the carpal tunnel syndrome and it's it's over and and, and over it's again. that's not a that's not a coincidence. No. It's it, this is a significant problem uh, that we see where you've got an anatomic narrowing and a nerve that's getting too big. So that's where you get this combination. And it's not just that they have carpal tunnel syndrome; it's that the the release actually helps relieve quite a bit of their pain. Right, and, and if we can't fix the metabolic problem yet. We haven't yeah. figured that out yet. yet. Yes, that you know, that's Nobel Prize winning. You yeah. could, if you could figure out the metabolic issue that is causing the edema within the nerve or causing the nerve to be more susceptible to entrapment syndromes, I can almost guarantee you that you will win the Nobel Prize because yeah. it is a significant problem worldwide, and it's only getting worse. So, having said that, what we can intervene on is is the anatomic narrowings that are involved, and we can make that. That nerve have more room. We can provide less compression, and we will see nerves respond to that. And that's yeah. part of what uh, Shai Rosen's study at UT Southwestern is, has been proving: is that this surgery has a significant impact on these folks when you select them appropriately. And and that's not not that difficult to do. You can see both pain relief and some sensory restoration in these folks, and and it can be dramatic. It can be life changing. So before you jump into surgery, what do you do typically as far as conservative therapy? You're pushing I, them to what? I like the neuropathy supplements. Yeah. I mean, there are some, there's one that we utilize uh, almost exclusively yeah, now. There's some far better than others. Well, the one we like is called EBN5, and it's from a company uh, called EBM Medical. And they have formulated B6, B12, alpha lipoic acid, uh, vitamin D, a couple other components yeah. in dosages that are effective at allowing the peripheral nerve to have what it needs to withstand compression, to withstand some of the trauma that it's experiencing from having diabetes, yeah. and then also provide the building blocks for good nerve healing. So we'll yeah. get our patients on this even before we're you know considering surgery because a lot of folks see symptomatic improvement where maybe they don't need the gabapentin as much. Yeah. As far as gabapentin and Lyrica or Neurontin and Lyrica are concerned, we use that frequently. One of the heads of the pain management group at Stanford, Ian, I'm blanking on his last name. I'm, I'll put it in the show notes. Uh, but he, he's very specific about his recommendations about gabapentin and Lyrica. And there's really not a good argument for putting someone on Lyrica right off the bat because it ends up going through your liver and becoming gabapentin anyway. So starting someone on gabapentin makes sense. Converting them to Lyrica would be if the would make sense. If the isn't working. Well, no, well. It, not just not working. If they've maxed out the dose yeah. and they aren't experiencing side effects. If they're at 3,600 milligrams a day and they don't have any side effects, it's not getting in the system. Yeah. They're pooping it out. Yeah. And so that would be a good reason to switch someone to Lyrica because Lyrica is absorbed in the duodenum in a very specific part of our intestine. Yeah. And... Because it's absorbed differently, you may find that the patients who weren't absorbing the gabapentin are going to absorb the Lyrica and then get the benefit of the drug. So that's really the main reason why I switch people from gabapentin to Lyrica, because that's really where I think it it can be effective. And I think that's everyone's 
ladder approach. You know, we start off with baseline gabapentin. Start low and go slow. Yeah, we level it up slowly until they get comfortable. And if it's working well, continue. And make sure you've counseled the patient so they understand that this drug's not going to fix anything. No, it's it, only symptomatic relief. Exactly, which is fine. And we believe the theory is that it, it is raising the threshold for the nerve to be irritable. Yeah. Which is a good thing. So if you can make the nerve more stable, less irritable, it's not going to shoot, yeah. uh, you know, you're not going to get spontaneous potentials being thrown off, you know, every second or every two seconds, which drives people crazy. Yeah. Then it's a good thing. So I think it's it's a valuable drug. We use it. We go slow. We start usually on 100 milligrams at night because it can make people sleepy and foggy. Yeah, very so drowsy. At night, it's a great place to start. We start at 100 and then we slowly work our way up. The reality is that most people don't get really good pain relief from that drug until they're at 1,800 milligrams a day. But there are patients who do great at 300. I don't argue with that. I think that's fantastic. We keep them there. And then we titrate from there. I mean, it's a drug that has to be titrated. If your primary care doctor has put you on this and then hasn't adjusted the dose for a year and you're not having pain relief with yeah. it, then you need to get back in touch with them and, and talk to them about titrating it. If they aren't comfortable titrating it, then you need to be moved on to someone like me who treats this on a daily basis or pain management, somebody yeah. who can help you titrate that drug. Yeah, uh, it's one of those medications that uh, um, a lot of patients are looking for, like uh, instant relief or euphoria, you know, when you take it, pain medication. It, it's not a it, silver bullet. No, it's not only going to slowly build up in your system, providing that light relief. Uh, I'd like to tell patients, um, ask your spouse, ask your family members who are living with you, do you complain about the foot pain? Are you complaining about the nerve pain as much? Because you may not notice that it's giving you instant relief or uh, that relief that you're getting, but the other people around you will. For sure. That's a really good point. That's a really good point. Because you're noticing pain, obviously, that you still have the numbness. The numbness isn't going to go away. Right. But is it as much? Is it as often? And that's another important point. If your primary care doctor or whoever prescribed it is putting you on it because of the numbness, that's not a reason to be on gabapentin. It's not going to It's not going it, to provide gonna sensation have, again. It's going to have no impact on that. Yeah. And so if you're... And some people have gone, unfortunately, their nerve disease has pushed through the pain zone and now they're just in yeah. in anesthesia land where it's just numb that's number one a bad place to be that's what we try to intervene and see if we can decompress these nerves so they don't end up there because once you are anesthetic and you are numb completely numb that's when you have to worry about calluses becoming ulcers and ulcers getting infected and, and amputations charco so <laughs> we don't want to let you get to that point and i think a lot of folks are being put on gabapentin and that's the only intervention that's being done. And so we're making them foggy and loopy until their nerves completely go south yeah. and they just live with numbness with no other intervention being considered. That's, I think, happening thousands of times every year for folks who have painful diabetic peripheral neuropathy. Yeah. And that's sad because they clearly we have something that that appears to be a, a significant intervention that that is surgery but is a significant intervention that works well and it's not being offered to nearly the number of patients that it should be yeah um and we're basically dosing them up on gabapentin um until their nerves die yeah. and that's sad so yeah. aside from the supplements aside from the nerve relief major contributor is your diabetic control you got to get Absolutely. your diabetes in control we cannot emphasize this enough. I do like the glucometers, the, the ones that you can leave on the shoulders. Um, right. Talk to your primary, talk to your endocrinologist, whoever's taking care of the diabetes. If you're not getting great diabetes care, find someone else. 
You don't have to stick with one guy taking care of everything. You need data. Yeah. Without data, you can't adjust your lifestyle. Uh, you're not going to be able to manage this disease process very well. You've Most patients don't data. want to prick their finger every, you know, no, four hours. I, I once, you know, in the morning, once after breakfast, once after lunch, once after dinner, and then before bedtime. And that's what happens. People are like, you know what? I kind of know where I'm, I'm falling. And then when your A1C comes back and it's like 10, 11, 12... You're like, well, it's not doing that great. So those glucometers, you leave them on for two weeks at a time. Those are great. I got my dad going on that. It's phenomenal. He, he loves it. You you download the app onto your phone. My mom has it on her phone because he was botting them out, and then he was getting like highs. He was, he was you know, yeah. riding that roller coaster. Right. And I was like, all right, we got to do something. And now when he's sleeping, my, my, my Even mom him out. Yeah, just, just taps the phone onto his thing, and she's like, all right, he's, he's 98. He's Perfect. good. Yeah. It's, it's peace of mind because uh, it's awesome. absolutely wonderful. And now, I don't know if they're doing it uh, as much, but now you can sync those glucometers with your insulin pump. And it's like a, the insulin pump works like an external pancreas, you know. Right. And you're slowly keeping that level, that, that highs and lows, that extreme roller yeah. coaster is now getting more and more steady. And it's, it's amazing how, how far this uh, technology has come. I think, yeah, the nanotechnology, the Bluetooth stuff, yeah. it's its really changing lives. It's fantastic. And it's something that I think any diabetic should take you know, advantage of when they have the opportunity to. Right, absolutely. All right, other conservative therapies. Uh, I think the TENS units can be helpful for yeah. some people. The Quell device, quell. Yeah, I we think. Yeah, those quite often. Right, they so quell, really quell is a unique device in that, uh, you know, according to the Quell folks and, and the research, uh, they... It appears to work centrally. It's not simply flooding the peripheral nervous system with yeah. white noise. It's actually toggling off pain centrally. So I think that's a unique thing that uh, we do recommend. Um, that Quell company decided not to go the insurance route, and so it's basically cash on the barrel head. But yeah. that's also allowed it to be accessible to much more people. Yeah, uh, they yeah. don't. You don't have to jump through hoops to get it. But their logic is um, just like how capsaicin works. You know, we're overstimulating the nerve, mm. and that nerve will start closing off some of those receptors, so that nerve uh, reception will be far less. It's actually based off of this like crazy old paper that they did, where like they took like slugs or snails or I don't remember what it was, and they would stimulate their their eyes. You know, their eyes that kind of retract. It's very, I mean, very crude. I'm describing. I'm probably botching it, but they would touch those eyes, and those eyes would stop retracting after. A certain amount of time and they just sit there and they touch touch and they would stop because the nerves are now um blocking off those receptors now yeah. they're new normal they're they're conscious and aware that it's happening but it's not causing irritation or pain or anything like that it's um the, the reflex is gone there yeah. yeah nerve flossing i know you're a big advocate with this yeah i i think it can be helpful uh, for patients who have mild pain or when we know we're heading towards surgery and maybe they need to delay it for whatever reason. I have lots of yeah. teachers who, you know, during maybe the spring, they're like, hey, I just need to stick this out until June and then I've got yeah. the summer. So we'll do, you know, some conservative things like send them to physical therapy and have them do some nerve flossing or nerve gliding techniques, which so what is that interesting. It's essentially, know. it's stretching um, the soft tissues around joints, uh, trying to... It's like when people do the carpal tunnel stretches, except yeah. on a more uh, aggressive level. Exactly. And a lot of these ideas were developed by a physical therapist from uh, Australia named David Butler. And he's written some really great papers on this. And so when I have local physical therapists who are familiar with the technique, but maybe aren't certified in it, I'll give them you know, some of those papers and say, hey, look, I want you to design a program this. for yeah. this patient. And thankfully, the guys at WISE in Argyle that we use primarily 
are doing really well oh, with yeah. this. And so it's it's a no-brainer. But I think post-op, I think it's necessary. So for the folks that end up going and having the nerve decompression surgeries, I think nerve gliding and nerve flossing is imperative. I think yeah. it's really important. You don't so. want that scar tissue to build up around no. it. You still want it. It's just like any tendons, you know, you want that to remain mobile. And, and we, we start it when their stitches come out. So once the sutures are ready to be removed, usually yeah. two to three weeks, then we get them into physical therapy and, and start doing the nerve gliding, nerve flossing, so that we don't allow uh, re-entrapment. And, and that's worked very well at, at preventing recurrence. All right. So surgery, there's quite a bit of surgery options for this but i don't think i want to i don't want to say options i want to say there's a different levels of release that we we um, incorporate into our treatment plan so first off common peroneal nerve release i think very underutilized uh, that nerve it's funny that nerve it cross it's part of your sciatic the sciatic nerve splits into your perineal or now called the fibular nerve and your tibial right behind the knee and and this nerve wraps around the neck of the fibula yeah. right way up by your knee and, and there's it's very superficial there so it can get injured you'll have football players that'll that'll get tackled yeah. and they'll injure it but that's usually a temporary nerve injury or a tall uh, cast that sometimes you know when you go to yeah we've talked about the cast impingement yeah. at that level so yeah. it, it can be an issue but in our diabetic population you know this nerve is getting swollen uh You'll see in the OR, this thing will be two or three times the normal size. Yeah. And massive. And just squishy. I mean, it just, it's edematous. It's yeah. waterlogged. And the fascial tissue that is holding this nerve in place can become a choke point. Yeah. And that's what we're looking for when yeah. we do these surgeries is we want to release these choke points. Yeah. And there's and a couple a great one. points there, you know, above and below. Mm-hmm. Um, the fascia between the, the, the muscle bellies. The septum, yeah. yeah. Yep, yep. And then you've got a fascial band that is beneath the common fibular nerve as yeah. well that sometimes can get thick and be a problem. So this is a fairly simple surgery to do. It's a relatively small incision up there at the fibular neck. It takes about 30 minutes to do this. And when you don't address this in some folks, this entrapment site can get so bad that they end up with a drop foot. Yeah. And so when they start getting motor problems you know those motor branches are more in the central aspect of that nerve so they're usually going to have sensory symptoms as the outer rim of the nerve gets compressed and they're going to get burning tingling shooting down the front of the the shin and down to the top of the foot Um, sometimes you know even into that first inner space where they'll be specific so once you have those symptoms uh, you can compress that area just gently in folks when they come into the clinic. And that's a positive provocative sign. You're provoking the nerve and you're causing the patient to have some sort of pain. And you can do it on one side and maybe they don't have the symptom at all on the other and they're diabetic. There's some subtle difference between the anatomy and and the right and the left leg that's that's allowing the left side to maybe be fine and the right side's problematic. And that's when patients say that the burning tingle is far worse on my one side and not so bad on the right side or left side or whatever. Um, When you do these surgeries, you use that nerve stim, right? Yeah, we use the Medtronic uh, nerve integrity monitor. I love that thing. we have the latest model that allows us to stimulate the nerve before we do the decompression, stimulate the nerve after we do the decompression, and then we can see a before and after picture. Yeah. Honestly, I don't know why you'd want to do this decompressive neurosurgery without that device yeah. because it's like doing bone surgery without x-ray. I mean, yeah. you wouldn't think of doing uh, bone surgery without fluoroscopy. That yeah. would be stupid. I honestly think that that device 
provides data we can't get any other way interoperatively. You know, you completely released it. Yeah. Well, and you also have documented uh, proof that when you left the OR, the nerve was working fine. So yeah. I think from a CYA cover your butt um, standpoint uh, in the litigious world that we live in, I think that's important as well. But it's nice to be able to go out into the recovery room and show the family, hey, look, we were able to increase the conductivity of this nerve two or three times or five yeah. times. Yeah. We've had them go from four or 5,000 uh, millivolts up to 30,000 millivolts. Wow. You know, I mean, huge jumps where you're pretty darn sure that patient's going to have a good result. And I can't think of any that didn't when they jumped five or six times yeah. what you were getting pre-decompression so that brings in like a level of confidence that you know that you did the, the proper thing right you decompress that mm -hmm. nerve you're allowing it to to function where it needs to and you're right that does allow you an endpoint to the surgery you can say clearly we found the choke points that yeah. were necessary for this nerve to function much more normally yeah. and typically and so, when you're in there i mean you'll see that pressure on that nerve you'll see impingement you you'll can sometimes indentation when you it. yeah exactly yeah. you'll have that indentation on that or nerve. you'll see blood vessels that run within the nerve suddenly open up yeah. that you couldn't see before now you can see them these are tiny like you know half a millimeter yeah. tiny little little blood vessels but they'll pop open and, and you'll be able to see that which is cool um, so deep peroneal nerve release this guy is uh you know not uncommonly entrapped in non-diabetics because I think women who, who have had uh, a history of wearing tight, shoe tight shoes or, or high heels. heels, yep, they'll compress it and that uh, extensor lucis brevis tendon crosses right over the main branch that goes to the first inner space. And so this is not a huge space of skin that this nerve innervates in the foot. It's really the first inner space, but when that thing is painful, Man, your whole foot hurts. Yeah. It's no fun. There's and not a lot of cushion there. You know, no. like we're on most areas, you have fat and whatever. The top of your foot, you have barely any cushion it's there. Skin, it's thin skin and a, then everything. A little bit of fat, and yeah. then you've got this tendon crushing this nerve down on the bone. Yeah. So that tendon's actually, I wouldn't call it vestigial, but it's not even found in a certain percentage of patients. And yeah. so it's also sacrificed for a lot of bunion yeah, surgeries. Yeah, yeah. It's a tendon that we can probably do without. We haven't seen any detrimental effects from, from sacrificing it. So we'll actually take about a centimeter section yeah. immediately over the nerve out because we feel that's the entrapment site. So it doesn't scar back into place. Right. Just get rid of it. And then the muscle actually... Will retract. Well, the muscle actually, we can actually, if we want, we can even tack that down so it, it actually protects the nerve during the scar formation process and so it, that's actually can be helpful um and, and then we'll also consider wrapping the nerve if, yeah. because that's a good spot that's a safe way. it's a good spot to wrap i just did a redo like a, a lady had a exostectomy done so she had a, a bone prominence on her midfoot that she had shaved down and yeah. unfortunately that scar rode right along the deep fibular nerve and she had an entrapment syndrome that happened as the scar formed it just entrapped that nerve horribly yeah. And we'll see that from time to time from any type of surgery in that area on the top of the foot. And it doesn't mean that the surgery was done incorrectly. No, or no. Oftentimes it's bad luck, but yeah. I personally believe whenever I'm doing exostectomies on the top of the foot, I'm finding that nerve and I'm wrapping it because yeah. I know how often that thing can get stuck in scar yeah. tissue. It's because that layer, I'm telling you, so little fat there, right. that skin as it's healing, it, it, it'll scar down over its high risk. So nope. this is a simple part of that triple nerve release. We'll do the common, we'll do the deep, and then we'll even go back up and do the, the superficial, which oh, you've got a great picture. Where did you find that picture? Good oh, job. I, oh, Google, Dr. Google. 
<laughs> nice job. So that's showing the orifice of where that nerve is popping out of deep fascia from the muscle layer to the superficial layer in the fat. And that orifice can be fibrous. It can get really thick. And the nerve can be entrapped at that site, causing burning pain, tingling on the top of the foot. A lot of um, ankle sprains will you know, be hidden with a... a Superficial pronin nerve release, right? Right. And so I have like chronic ankle pain. You're like, right. all right, you, you've seen all these docs. You're having ankle pain. This might not be just ankle pain. Absolutely. We brought that up in our ankle sprain podcast uh, a couple months ago. And, and I think that's an important point. I think when you have a traction injury or a stretching of that nerve yeah. from an inversion ankle sprain where you're rolling your ankle, nerves do not like to get stretched. And that is a quick way to have it become scarred in internally. Yeah. And that that's a really tough injury to come back from. Oftentimes, we can release the surrounding tissues and then even sometimes do an internal neurolysis where we yeah. release the epineurium. And that can improve the symptoms dramatically, often, often make them go yeah. away Because that little portal, that little um, poke hole that it comes through, is, it's very snug. It's, yep. it and we'll, we'll unzip that. it, you know, yeah. 10 centimeters yeah. if we need to, nice just do a complete fasciotomy this, there. Yeah, this picture doesn't do it just because this is all fascia up here. This is just kind of showing the, uh, yeah. the anatomy. They've, they've excised that fascial wall. We don't do, we don't excise all of that. No, they, they will, we'd release it, you know, <laughs> yeah, we just, a good we, length and let right. it lie free and then right. wrap it with a nice little uh, stem cell graft. If we can, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Works just like your tarsal tunnel. Then, oh, yes, absolutely. So, you know, the tarsal tunnel is uh, a common source of, of problems in non-diabetics and diabetics. But yeah. in, in the diabetic, again, it, it's being driven by this neural edema, the thickening or, or um, fibrosis of the surrounding soft tissue yeah. so that f the flux retinaculum can become uh, thick and fibrous. I think the real point of entrapment for a lot of folks is really the portapedis which port is i try to find a good yeah. picture of that they're tough uh, yeah it's hard but so you, you generally that's that's the portapedis i mean it's behind the abductor and you've really found it it's just distal to the major portion of the flux retinaculum so you've you've basically found it there yeah. and you're getting this split and we'll find that the tibial nerve has three or four major anatomic variants and so yeah. there are some folks where they're their nerve splits very high up and it becomes above the retinaculum. right and yeah. and it becomes three nerves right off the bat and that takes up more room in the tunnel yeah. than one that stays just the tibial nerve until it gets almost to the very end of the tunnel and then it splits yeah what so, about the ones that are splitting ultra low and they're impeding the septum uh that yeah clearly that can be an issue too but i i think the the ones that take up more space are are generally the ones that split very high up yeah and sometimes the calcaneal branch is so high that you don't even see it. It's yeah, almost in like, the skin. Like, did I miss it? Did yeah. I? Where'd yeah. it go? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we can find all those branches. It's real important. And then uh, follow them out as far as you can and uh, make sure there are no further entrapment sites. But the major entrapment sites are really at the portapedis. And the yeah. symptoms that you get with the tarsal tunnel syndrome is that, that blatant numbness, that tingling numbness on the bottom of your feet. Mm -hmm. And you can see how that could be easily uh, mixed up with uh, just generic neuropathy. Sure. You know, that, that numbness, tingling numbness, that burning sensation. If um, you get pinned with idiopathic peripheral neuropathy, you want to make sure that that's been worked up. Yeah. Because that's a label that may follow you the rest of your life. Yeah. And, and if nobody does any oh. additional investigation, you may have an entrapment syndrome that could be corrected. And... Yeah. 
let's go back just briefly to common perineal or common fibular nerve. There are some folks who've been labeled with restless leg syndrome. Yes, yes. Who truly have an entrapment of the common fibular nerve. Yeah. And they're on Requip and they're on these medications that are hard to get off of. And they're maybe still not uh, satisfied with the relief that they're getting. Their spouse may still be getting kicked in the middle of the yeah. night. So... So what do you do to determine that? Do you do your nerve blocks? What do you do? Yeah, I don't think you can necessarily. I I mean, the nerve blocks might be helpful in some cases, but I think most of those folks have a positive provocative sign. And so if they have a positive provocative sign, I'll I'll tell them, hey, look, I think you have an entrapped common fibular nerve. You've been labeled with restless leg syndrome. We may find that if we decompress this nerve that you're going to have a benefit on both sides. You're going to have pain relief, but you're also going to see your, your RLS get better. Yeah. I don't make any guarantees because I think that's really hard to do. Nerves are one of those things that they're very finicky. They're like, even if you release the nerve, you may have some instant relief, but it, there's a healing process. Yeah. Nerves take such it, a long time. 12 to, to 18 months is usually what I tell patients. Yeah. That you, you won't reach maximal benefit until we get about 18 months down the line. Yeah. And do you have them continue the gabapentin and continue their yes. supplements? Yes. You don't want to go cold turkey with gabapentin or Lyrica, period. Yeah. You want to taper. Um, they're great for perioperative pain. So they're good for the burning and tingling yeah. as it continues to hopefully get fewer and far between. And a lot of people think when we're talking about supplements, it's just kind of like, oh, take your vitamins, you take your... I mean, these are supplements that, like we said earlier, these are specifically for nerves. Just like if you have osteoporosis, you know, you take your calcium, your vitamin Ds, you know, everything that's going to build the bones, these are your building blocks for your nerves. So even after you release these nerves, we want them to heal. So these and and at are, dosages that are correct as yes, well. Yes, Because you may you find just, B6 and B12 in your general vitamin pack that you take because yeah. you take a centrum you know silver or whatever do you know but the active ingredient in most um energy drinks like those 500 energies it's like five thousand times dose of your b12 vitamins yeah it's uh <laughs> it, it's extreme and yeah. I, this my mom even had this happen she was getting common perineal or common fibular nerve neuritis and we couldn't figure out what was going on and uh she had visited and i'd examined her and i'm like man you you have a hot common fibular nerve I, she was tender there she was getting burning tingling couldn't figure out what's going on and i'm like yeah we, we really need to run some labs and so we ran all her b uh we checked her hormone levels ran her b6 and b12 levels and she was off the charts wow. because she was supplementing and eating lots of bananas and getting it in her diet anyway yeah. and she was off the charts as soon as we got her to stop supplementing because she was getting plenty of it in her diet because yeah. my mom eats great you know her symptoms went away within yeah. a few weeks yeah, so we were literally going to operate on her and what it really required was we needed to do a, a you know really good workup so Included in all this, most of the time is uh, in weird ones where they just doesn't make sense. Uh, is a you know some blood work and a workup of some of those levels to make sure that they're not toxic. So I got a couple of um, uh, studies from someone that we may know. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, that was two thousand five. So essentially, what we were trying to accomplish with that study was to utilize ultrasound and see if we could use ultrasound of the tibial nerve in the tarsal tunnel to distinguish someone who has diabetic peripheral neuropathy that would benefit from uh, nerve decompression. So you have patients who are in symptomatic pain, uh, like your tarsal tunnels, but mm -hmm. they also have neuropathy, and you're determining if ultrasound 
is a key way of determining if the nerve is enlarged or not enlarged. Yes. Correct? Well, and, and we had essentially, you know, three separate patient populations. We had diabetics who had no neuropathic symptoms. Yeah. We had non-diabetics, and then we had diabetics with neuropathy. So with non-diabetics were your control group. You know that these people are normal. They don't have tarsal tunnel. They don't have diabetic neuropathy. Right. Then you have your diabetics without neuropathy. Right, because we really wanted to look at both of those groups as well and yeah. really compare the size of the nerve in each one of those groups. And then your symptomatic group, your diabetic right. with neuropathy and that tarsal tunnel. And I, what I found fascinating was that the diabetics without neuropathy and the non-diabetics, their tibial nerves were about the same size. Yeah. You know, they were about 12 millimeters squared. And then the diabetics with symptoms, it was like 24 millimeters Double the squared size. plus. Yeah. It was some that were in the 30s. Yeah, that's so, crazy. you know, that's essentially, you know, your tibial nerve should be a, a, about the caliber of this pen. Yeah. Maybe a little less. A little less. Yeah. And in the diabetic patients, if you can imagine uh, twice this size yeah. going through the tunnel built for this size. Yeah. You know, that's the problem. So, you know, that was a real issue. So that, that was an interesting study. I think it, it, it didn't add a whole lot of new information to the medical literature, but it did show that you could use ultrasound as a, as a way of screening some of these folks, which I thought was helpful. Yeah, so from your study, you saw that there was a, a, a threshold on, a, on when you're having slight symptoms and when you're having severe symptoms. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I mean, it's all based on... You know, measurements, just like how we do for plantar fascia and ultrasound. Right. You can see if the plantar fascia is more than four millimeters, then it's more likely, you know, plantar fasciitis or plantar fasciosis. Right. And depending on how long it's been going on for. Same thing for your nerves. 18 millimeters and above. Yeah, you could really see the significant impairment start happening. And that's when the patients are having that, that, that significant pain, that tingling numbness. I think what's interesting, and we probably should have pursued this a little further, was comparing this information with nerve conduction and EMGs, but I, I can tell you right now, the vast majority of those folks that had mild to moderate symptoms were going to have completely normal NCV EMGs. We send lots of patients who have these symptoms to get nerve conduction and electromyograms. Yeah. Why? Because I want to make sure that there's no major component from the back, and yeah. that test is really good at finding that. The EMG component, they can put electrodes in those paraspinal muscles, and if you see fibrillation, you know there's a nerve that's irritable. It's not great at finding mild to moderate symptoms in the lower extremity and identifying where on the nerve that is, unless you use the inching technique, which <laughs> takes a lot of time. I don't think these guys, the, the most PMNR guys and the neurologists get paid as well as they should for this test because yeah. a lot of them aren't going to do the inching technique. Very time consuming. Yeah. It doesn't reimburse. And right. Patients, you know, obviously it's getting, not a, it's uncomfortable because yeah, you're, you're also getting poked. Yeah, multiple, you're getting poked times. every every inch, right? Yeah. So it's a kind of double edged sword. But at the same time, I think it's a great test. And when it comes back, quote unquote, normal, and the patient still has symptoms that we know are are they're not malingering. Yeah. We know they real they have real symptoms. I interpret that as t- telling me that the peripheral nervous system overall is functioning rather normally. Yeah. But you've got a couple of nerves that are irritable, causing symptoms. And that tells me that this patient has a great chance yeah. of healing this up well if we can just get rid of the entrapment. Yeah, it's better at ruling out lower back problems and uh, yeah. higher nerve problems rather than uh, at the, the side, you know, near below. And, and for the same reason, hand surgeons don't use it to, yeah. to tell them who's going to benefit from a carpal tunnel release. That's a clinical diagnosis just like the lower extremity. Yeah. So it's not different at all. 
So the people who are not fans of, of nerf release, what would you say uh, uh, the, uh, the limitation on that uh, is? I mean, I know a lot of primary care doctors are like, oh, no, you don't. I think there's dogma. You've got to educate. And that's what I've done for 20 years. It's been just that if I had a primary care doctor or a neurologist that was like, uh, hey, look, you're there. NCV EMG was normal. Why? Why do you want to operate on yeah. the patient? And and you'll will hear that. I mean, they're yeah. like, look, everything came back normal, and you still want to do surgery. Why is that? Uh, thankfully, that these same guys have seen my outcomes over yeah. the last I mean, twenty these years. Guys know better but, now. but I think you you have to educate because the dogma is such that diabetic peripheral neuropathy is is stocking glove that it's progressive. It's that there's no cure. Yeah. All you can do is is manage the diabetes, the manage the glucose levels as best you can, but. A lot of patients will be referred to pain management doctors. And get spinal cord stimulators and have all kinds of interventions being done. Chronic opioids. I mean, it's... It it can get really... You can go down a rabbit hole that's pretty pretty awful. So thankfully, I think... Again, I I don't want to harp on it too much, but the the randomized controlled trial, multi-specialty trial that they're doing at UT Southwestern with with, uh, Shai Rosen leading, leading the team there is really... May, oh, there you go. That, and well, no, wait. Which one do you got here? This is a. Uh, oh no, that's shy. Yeah, that's yeah. it. Yep, yep. That's the DNND. You know, this study they've presented aspects of it at a number of different major meetings. Yeah. Uh, they actually closed. I think they closed most of the data down back in 2013. So there's still. I mean, there's just a treasure trove of stuff that they were able yeah, to. Yeah, I saw that there were show. that there were the American Diabetes Association. They went to upper extremity yeah. nerve entrapment. I mean, they went to a couple of these. I mean. And right. Wonderful study. A million dollar study, nine years in the making. Yeah. Um, almost 3,000 screened patients, and they enrolled 138. And this was really interesting. So they, they were actually allowed to do a sham surgery. Yeah. I mean, when was the last time you saw a study where sham, in the U.S. anyway, yeah. where sham surgery was approved? So a sham surgery is where you make a slight incision mm-hmm. to show that you've done something there. So the, the patient and the doctor who's actually going to go back and do the results and stuff don't know they're what blinded. side. Yeah, they're double right. blinded. The doctor doesn't know who's getting the results, and the patient doesn't know uh, who's obviously undergoing the surgery. The surgeon who's doing the surgery is excluded from all this so they, because they obviously know what the surgery is being done. Right. And uh, it's, it's such a smart way of doing this. And I understand that, I mean, you don't want to you know, do all these type of sham surgeries, but when you have a specific problem and there's no way to determine... How much the placebo effect is, is there. Yeah. That was really, that was a big part of what I think the, the detractors of these procedures were harping on was that they felt there was a big placebo effect to yeah. this. And the, I think this is clearly diminishing that significantly. So and the length like, of this study is, is, is so good. And you have to have that kind of length because we're talking nerves. And I think the original, the original folks, the control group, had no significant pain reduction, and over the course of the study, reported slight yeah. increase yeah, look, in pain. At the one year mark. At I one mean, year, right? Very. Uh, I mean, there is benefit from the pain reduction on the surgical leg versus the sham leg. Right. But it's it's negligible. It's, right. it's close. And we, and after that is when you start to see the split. Yeah. And the split, it makes perfect sense that the sham leg really didn't improve. The true surgery was done on that split was significant. You're reducing their overall medications, opioids, right. uh, gabapentin, Lyrica, whatever else they're using. 
they're living more comfortable lives. I mean, you're, what you're, more can you ask for? And you're potentially eliminating a huge portion of patients who would otherwise end up going on to ulceration and, and yeah. potentially infection and amputation. So this surgery can be used for the painful uh, diabetic peripheral neuropathy patient. It can also be utilized. This is also studied. They can also utilize it for ulcer recidivism. So if you're trying to prevent another ulcer in a patient, you can do this type of surgery on them, release the nerve, improve their sensation enough that they will then not ulcerate in the same spot again. And that is an, I think, underutilized aspect of this particular procedure. It's true because I'll be be honest, you know, patient comes in and they have an ulcer. My thought process is ulcer prevention get rid of this ulcer and get them healed up, you know, do offloading, mm-hmm. uh, get their diabetes under control. And I, I'm guilty of it where I won't think about what I can do to help bring back that sensation again. And, and sometimes your approach uh, is going to work. You're going to get them in the diabetic shoes. You're going to do the padding and the routine care, and you're going to keep them out of trouble. And if that's the case and you've got two or three or four years under your belt where you've been able to keep them ulcer-free – Keep going down that road. That's fine. That's probably not someone who needs the surgery, but it's the patient who just seems to have ulcer recurrence after ulcer recurrence. I've got a guy right now who's 41. I saw him again this week. Shows up out of the. He always shows up when he's got a problem. He never shows up for routine care, which is too bad. But he's got ulcers on both feet now. He's still working. You know, his family relies on him to work. It's going to be really hard to get these wounds closed. And I had that conversation with him. I said, look, you're really a candidate where we need to decompress your nerves because you can't keep getting these and not end up with one of these threatening your foot and leading to an amputation because you're the guy who this is going to happen to. And I, I, we had to have that conversation, which is a difficult conversation, but he's just one of those guys. He's going to ignore it to the extent, even ignored these until he had cellulitis that was going up to his ankle. It's because they have no pain. They have, right. It's that lack of sensation. So they're like, oh, it's not causing me problems. It's not hurting me. It's no big problem. I'll just, you know. He noticed it on Friday. He didn't let us know until Tuesday. <laughs> you know, I'm like, dude, four days. That's yeah. enough for you to lose your limb. You're very yeah. fortunate. What this randomized controlled trial that they're doing at UT Southwestern is accomplishing is I think it's highlighting the fact that Dellen's work, it, it's validating his work. And I think all of the detractors are having to, to relook at this information and say, okay, we wanted a randomized controlled trial. We wanted to, to see multi-specialty yeah. um, critiques of this work. And you're getting that with this study. And so when they, there's probably three or four or five different papers are going to come out of this. Yeah. Maybe more. Maybe the only downside of, is how long it's going to take for it to catch yeah. up. Yeah. But I think it's already catching up. I mean, I've, I, I have, you know, a cadre of folks that refer to me specifically for this problem from all over North Texas and beyond now yeah. and, and thanks to dr dell and he if there's someone in texas that reaches out to him oftentimes he'll say hey look i've got a guy in dallas you can you can go see and and we're co-working on a, a guy right now who's who's having um perennial pain so he's having groin pain oh, wow. that dr Dellen's working with and then uh, you know i just decompressed his common and superficial and deep fibular nerve um and he's not diabetic so he's he's kind of uh an interesting case of an anatomy issue i think but anyway, that study is going to be remarkable. It's going to be groundbreaking, and it already is. And I think the, the repercussions of it are hopefully that people will take another look at the option of surgical decompression in diabetic peripheral neuropathy as something for pain relief, but also for sensory restoration 
and to help prevent wounds. I think it, it can do all of those things. Yeah. Awesome, man. That was uh, that was a quick hour. I can't believe we got through an hour. <laughs> so this is the beginning of season two. I love the templates. Hopefully they're going to look as good on YouTube. But uh, I want to thank uh, Michael Yoder and the Truthwork team that uh, helped produce this. Uh, these guys are awesome. Yeah, they're crushing it. I want to thank uh, Chris, our marketing guy. He's doing a fantastic job. And uh, we hope to continue to grow this over the next several years and provide free education, essentially. And um, we hope you guys like it. And please like and subscribe. And we will see you for uh, the second episode in Season 2 coming up next week. Thanks, Dr. Hussein. We'll talk to you later. Thank you for listening to the Pod Doctors. We appreciate all of our listeners and subscribers. If you'd like to hear more, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and watch our videos on YouTube. Like, thumbs up, subscribe, and be safe. See you all next time. Bye-bye.